It's a pleasure to be with you this morning to worship with you. If we haven't had the privilege yet of meeting, my name is Josiah, and I've only been here at Harvest for about a year now. Um, I came down from Virginia for uh, the purpose of studying here at, at RTS for seminary. And so um, just a little bit about myself. I am a missionary kid, and I grew up as a missionary kid for 10 years in Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. That kind of formulates a large part of my identity and who I am. So in a way, I feel a little bit more Russian than I do feel Korean. Um, But thank you uh, for allowing me to come. Um, I'm currently serving full-time as, uh, or I'm a student full-time at RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary here in Orlando, and I'm also serving as a youth director for our church. But thank you for allowing me to speak from God's Word, and a big thank you to Pastor DL for trusting me and allowing me to share and speaking God's word to you all and also helping me to kind of formulate the structure of this message. The last time I wore a uh, wireless handheld, handless mic was when I was standing in front of a couple thousand people singing and dancing to the start of something new and breaking free from High School Musical. Uh, I was selected, probably erroneously, to be Troy Bolton, who is the protagonist of our production. And what's ironic is that concurrently, I was also the captain of my basketball team. And I had this innate desire, it was a hidden secret that I wanted to also sing and dance. And so in a very meta way, I was living out Troy Bolton. Um, But I was also cognizant that it might incur some ridicule for my friends. In High School Musical, we see Troy and his romantic partner, Gabrielle. They are trying to kind of, quote, unquote, break free from the um, constructs that are around them to sing and dance and be themselves. And so we find in one scene that these paragons of basketball and their math community, they convene in this hidden garden um, where uh, (laughs) Troy exclaims, sometimes I don't want to be just the basketball guy. I want to be, you know, me. He's just angsty, like just really, really angsty. Um, And they're both afraid of showing their vulnerable sides to their communities, especially after a whole cafeteria sings to them, stick to status quo. What Troy and and Gabriella both deal with is shame. They're unable to kind of show people who they really are and come to terms with that. And throughout the musical, they try to cover themselves in these fig leaves of perfectionism and performance to the respective spheres. In a very meta way, I endure this too. Um, High School Musical was incredibly fun, but ironically, I vowed that no one will ever see that DVD, and not even my future wife, especially because that would be grounds for separation. Um, But even that sentence has like a tinge of shame and embarrassment in it, because what should be celebrated in the arts, I'm actually kind of embarrassed by. And today we want to talk about something that's more than embarrassment. Embarrassment is something we can laugh at, but shame is something so deep we will never laugh at. So differing from shame, um, I think we all understand how that feels. We we have this collective sense of knowing what it's like to to be afraid of being deeply known. So whether you are new to understanding who Jesus is, or whether you've walked with Christ for a long time, this message and the truths from this gospel is for all and in between. 
So this morning, we're going to look at the crux of shame and how it stunts our growth in Christ, how it prohibits us from thriving in the bounds of God's mercy, and how it condemns us and isolates us from Jesus. The questions we'll try to answer is, what is shame? What has a voice of shame been speaking into your life and into your story? And most importantly, what does God have to say about shame? We're all infected with shame, and it can show in conspicuous or inconspicuous ways. So we're going to look at a narrative where Jesus encounters this woman who has been suffering from a physical ailment for about 12 years. And so if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, the book of Mark, chapter 5, and we're going to read from verse 21 to 34. Mark chapter 5, verse 21 to 34. This is God's word. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And so he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and she came up from behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, before we progress and delve into this text, we have to understand what exactly shame is. Um, So in Greek, uh, in the original text, the word for shame is aishune. And the connotations of that kind of carry our dishonor, nakedness, and to be ashamed of the face. As understanding these, understood in these biblical times, shame involved falling short of a standard set by ourselves or by others. But I think we have to be careful not to confuse guilt and shame together. Um, guilt is the understanding in the biblical perspective that we have come short of the commands and the statutes of God, and we have transgressed and violated what he wants in our lives. Um, guilt benefits us because the Holy Spirit reminds us how far we've fallen from God in our actions, our thoughts, and our deeds. But shame, on the other hand, can linger even after we have lost, we have been granted forgiveness. It condemns us. And this aphorism is helpful in that guilt says, I've made a mistake, but shame says, I am a mistake. And it's one thing to believe that sin is removed from us, but it's quite another for us to understand and believe and take to heart 
that God's love can never be removed from us, no matter what we do. So in the gospel, the sole pathway to freedom for both is through the means of grace and the redeeming work that Christ has done for us. Um, there are some other people who can explain shame a lot better than I can, so we're just going to look into a couple definitions. Ed Welch is a biblical counselor, and he says this about shame. He says, shame is a deep sense that you are inherently flawed, unacceptable, and unworthy of love because of something you've done, something done to you, or something associated with you. It's a deep restlessness and discontentment with who we are. And there's an element in there that's where we strive for perfectionism and performance to appease others and to appease our own discontentment. Um, Dr. Brene Brown is a researcher, uh, and she's a leading scholar on the discourse of shame. And she says this. She says there are the ABCs to shame, where one, or A, we all are infected with it. We have it. Two, we're unwilling to discuss it, however. And three, the less we talk about it, the more shame has control over our lives. And the last kind of quote that's really, really helpful for today is from Jean-Paul Sartre, who is a philosopher. He says this succinctly. He says, shame is a hemorrhage of the soul, or shame is a bleeding out of the soul. And this definition we'll see is pretty relevant and applicable to Jesus' encounter with the woman. The thrust of today's message is this, that shame seeks to isolate us, it seeks to cripple us, to condemn us, and to separate us from Christ. But in Christ alone do we find perfect healing from our shame as he restores us and redignifies us into his family. So there are three thoughts we have this morning on shame and what it means for us to wrestle with shame. The first thought is that shame isolates us from community and from Christ. Shame isolates us from community and from Christ. Now, before we, un- we, we see how shame connects to this woman's story in Mark chapter 5, we need to gain a better understanding of the biblical motifs and the biblical themes of shame because that all plays intricately into the woman's story. And so we have to go back to the very beginning where shame had its conception. And it's in the Garden of Eden where God created the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And he created man, those man and woman, and all of humankind to be made in his image and his likeness. And we are made as royal priests to reflect God's honor and his glory and his dignity. And it says here that in this garden where Adam and Eve are, they have a free relationship with God that's not separated by anything else. There's no sin yet that's entered the world. And they're actually both naked, and yet they are not ashamed. And so the first, this is the first motif that we see in Scripture is that the three motifs are nakedness, uncleanliness, or defilement, and then also rejection or removal from the community. So with the first one, with the nakedness, we see that Adam and Eve are forbidden by God in the Garden of Eden to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. But they do so. They disobey. And as a result, sin enters in the world, and in its wake comes sin, shame, guilt, and death. They lost their face before him. Their relationship with God and with each other becomes severed. And so we see that shame doesn't come from God. That wasn't God's original intention for mankind. Shame comes as a result of this fallen world. 
So now aware of their nakedness, Adam and Eve start to try to conceive a plan to cover their nakedness. And so they start to sew fig leaves together to cover themselves. And in doing so, they want to hide themselves from each, their, their own vulnerability and exposure. And they hide also from God. And so what we see with shame is that shame has horizontal as well as vertical elements. Shame fractures the marriage that Adam and Eve have where they play this blame game and Adam throws his wife under the bus. But more importantly, shame completely disconnects them from God. And so now that they're at odds with God and who God is and they hide from God and God calls out to them in the garden, where are you? The shame that Adam and Eve felt was objectively shameful before God because of their sin. And so we see that from their experience that we gain a different self-perception because of sin, where we view ourselves less than what we were created to be. But we also have a misconception and misperception of who God is, and that we think God is disappointed in us and in our failures. Like Adam and Eve, I think we too deal with ineffective strategies of covering ourselves with fig leaves to attempt to hide behind something because we don't want to face this reality of who we really are. Self-encouragement and self-help and positive self-esteem, they're good things, but they're far from adequate to cover our shame. We cover ourselves by hiding, and we choose to hide behind facades. And for a lot of us, we hide in our homes, but we also ironically hide away from our homes. We hide in our workplaces, we hide behind our screens, our phones, and Netflix. We hide behind perfectionism and the pursuit of working more so that we can appear on the surface to be better than we really are because we are afraid of rejection. We have to hide somewhere, but there's a right place to hide, and that's in Christ. Christ alone is the one who provides a refuge for us from the tumult of sin, shame, and death. The second image that we, the second motif that we see in Scripture is uncleanliness. And to kind of exemplify and to explicate on that, cleanliness symbolizes a right standing before God. So in the Old Testament, God gave his people, Israel, lots and lots of laws, right? In the book of Leviticus through Deuteronomy, it's not the most exciting thing, but it's helpful because what he does is God partitions where he divides his people into four groups to try to help them to understand the, the bigger picture. So we see that there's unclean, which is dirty, which happens when we touch like a dead body or we get into contact with blood. And then there's clean, and there's a process of moving from unclean to clean. And then there's common, which is a combination of both unclean and clean. And then within the, the presence of God, there's the holy. And so what God's trying to teach his people are several things, but most importantly, God's trying to teach them that sin is, re- is represented by dirtiness. That when we become unclean, sin also is the same thing, where it disfigures us, it stains us, and it separates us from each other and from God. And so there has to be a, a series of protocols to get from unclean to clean. And at the very basic and the very minimum of that, it involves a sacrifice in the Old Testament made by a priest who can mediate and atone for your, for your uncleanliness. But what God wants to do is he wants to teach his people that I want you, because of your sin, you have separated yourselves from me, but my goal with you is to bring you back into my fold, into my presence, from unclean into the holy. 
In Leviticus 15, verses 19 to 30, we don't have, we're not going to read it from there, but there's this one particular law that's, that's interesting and relevant to our story where God says, if there's a woman who has been bleeding um, beyond her normal menstrual period, then she becomes unclean. And what happens is whenever, whatever she touches, any object or any person she comes into contact with also becomes unclean. And so because of that, as a result, the woman has to become, to come outside the community, and she's no longer able to, to enjoy the communal life. And so that brings us to our third motif, which is rejection or being outside of community or expulsion. And in Scripture, it says being outside the camp of God. And to be inside the camp of God means you get to enjoy the community and the fellowship, as well as, more importantly, worshiping in the tabernacle of God. But to be outside the camp means that you face separation and death and loneliness. This is exemplified in Leviticus 16, the subsequent chapter, where on the special day called the Day of Atonement, um, there are two goats that are taken. And the Day of Atonement is a kind of nationwide repentance of the sins of the whole past year that the nation's committed. And so what they do is they take two goats and they cast lots, which is really important and key. They cast lots, and so one goat is selected to, they put all the sin upon that goat and sacrifice in a sin offering. But the other goat, they also place the sins of the nation on that goat, but they take the goat into the wilderness, and they take it outside the camp of God for it to die in the desert, and they say it's handed over to Azazel, which many commentators say is Satan. So this is the backdrop that we have so far for our understanding of biblical motifs of shame. There's nakedness, uncleanness, and expulsion from community. But let's finally return to Mark 5. And if we look at verse 25 and 26, it says this. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. So this woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, as we see from Leviticus um, chapter 15, she has been deemed unclean for the past 12 years. And it's a condition that you can't really hide too well. And so in that way of being exposed, there's a nakedness about her where everyone knows the inner state of who she is. And also she is deemed unclean. So now she can't be with her family. She can't be with her community. And most importantly, she can't come to temple to worship God and commune with other believers. And so there's our st- there were special places reserved for those who were unclean outside of the city. We have to remember that shame isolates. The shame of having that physical and chronic ailment assailed her. But also, shame isolated her financially because she, gave, she spent all that she had on physicians. And I love medicine. Um, that was one thing I wanted to pursue with my career, so I'm always, like, piqued by what medicine was like in those days. And so when I, when I read and researched more, the diagnosis that doctors would give at that time was rather interesting. It would be, for, for such a condition like this, they would say you would have to eat boiled onions as much as possible, or they would even say you would have to eat manure from donkeys. Another, one, another physician says that you have to carry these dried quail eggs with you wherever you go. So as you can see, not only does she lose money, but she's put into these extreme measures of treatment. And there's no, like the best human treatment that's possible cannot even save her. So she un- endures and undergoes all three biblical motifs of shame in Scripture. We have to remember Jean-Paul Sartre's quote, that shame is a hemorrhaging of the soul. 
And for her, she's not just hemorrhaging physically, but she's also hemorrhaging emotionally and spiritually. And in Scripture, blood represents life. And so we see for the past 12 years, her life has been ebbing away from her. All my life, for me, I've struggled with the shame of being a failure. And in high school, in my senior year, I had this, uh, I made this wall of shame in my room where I would print, like, all the rejection letters from colleges and the basketball teams I didn't make, and I would plaster on my wall. So I would wake up, and the first thing I would see that morning was just a reminder of all my failures. And it was a horrible way to motivate myself, and it didn't work at all. Um, but that just kind of reflects just what state I was in. And so last year, um, I was interviewing at medical schools um, when God used the weightless rejections to call me out of medicine and into seminary to become a pastor. An entire very, like, rocky year left me ashamed of who I was. I failed majorly. I failed a lot in my relationships and my friendships. I failed in my pursuit of medicine, which I pursued for seven years. And so as a result, I isolated myself from the community that God had given me at my church And I just stuck to myself because I thought, surely, when they see how pathetic my life is turning out, that they would feel really sorry for me and pity me. And so it was last year and last August when I was sitting here for a first Sunday and Pastor Deal gave his message. And in time of reflection and prayer, I was just thinking like, oh my gosh, what am I doing here? I, at that point last year, I was supposed to be married and I was supposed to have someone put a white coat over me, welcome me into med school. But instead, here I was, a thousand miles south of Virginia, with a, in a city with not many people that I knew of, to pursue a career I wasn't very sure of. Shame isolates us. It rips us away financially and socially, but most important, spiritually, from the community of Christ. Shame is a soil from which that roots many other of our issues. And shame also perturbs our identity in Christ. Satan wields shame masterfully to destroy the identity that we have in Jesus. Our unworthiness drives us to this tightrope of perfectionism. David Brooks is a modern culture critic, and he says that our age of shame is exemplified in the statement that I am what I do. I think shame makes us seek out popularity. It makes us seek out intimacy in romantic relationships, relevance on social media, so that we can show and demonstrate the most airbrushed versions of ourselves. Practically, shame comes in the mundanity and also the hard times of life. Shame comes in being laid off and having to tell our spouse or significant other. Shame comes in hiding the fact that we are in recovery from our addictions and substance abuse. Shame is in our rage to our children. It's in our bankruptcies. It's in our infertility. It's in not getting the deserved promotion that we have worked so hard to earn. Shame is in our viewings of pornography late at night. It's in our showing our parents our report card at the end of the quarter. Shame is hearing my parents scream at each other through the walls of my bedroom. Shame for us comes from several different places. I think primarily it comes from our sinful lifestyle 
That's what kind of feeds it mostly. But shame also comes from exterior or external places. And one of the most prevalent places that shame comes from is from abuse. Abuse is when someone intentionally hurts you verbally, physically, or sexually to gain control or power over you. And what invariably follows is a lie that says, I had to go through this because I deserved it, or bad things happen to bad people, or my feelings don't really matter in this situation, or it was my fault. Shame also comes from ridicule. And in our contemporary culture of criticism, it's way too easy for us to become shamed in this way. I think even here in our church, in our community, that can become the tendency too, where a passing snide remark or a joke that's gone too far can instill shame in someone else when we don't realize Shame also comes from neglect. Abuse says that I hurt you because you're unworthy. Neglect says I ignore you because you're unworthy. And I think it comes more inadvertently when maybe our parents are working really hard to provide for us and they're not able to spend as much time and to be with us physically and emotionally. And so as a result, we are neglected. Shame also comes in associating ourselves with others, and that primarily comes across in the family, where we keep our secrets hidden from the world about our unwanted pregnancies and abortions, about our financial crisis. And lastly, shame comes from trauma, when we experience death or accidents. And what happens with all of these, these different forces that kind of contribute to our shame, what follows is anger and anxiety and depression. So the question for you this morning is, Where and how has shame come up in your story and in your life? How has it whispered lies about your identity and called you unworthy? Did it come through abuse, through shame, through ridicule and neglect? I think it's it's usually a confluence of all of these. But I think the most important question is, is how does Christ view shame and how does he get rid of it for us? So it brings us to our second point that the path to restoration begins with dependence and vulnerability. The path to restoration begins with vulnerability and dependence. With dependence, we see that Mark, he's writing this, uh, this, this letter to not a Jewish audience. So he's writing from Rome to a very Gentile audience. And so he has to explain some of the Jewish customs to people that's not used to it. Now, Jesus, oh, Mark shows this woman as someone who's being virtuous She's not um, with her condition because she has sinned, but she comes in a virtuous way where she comes with a complete dependence on Christ, where she says in her action, she says, I'm going to trust Christ and I'm going to place my hope in him because he alone can heal me. In in Numbers 15, 37 to 39, um, this might be interesting for some of you. Uh, It says, the Lord says to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout the generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So these tassels that God instructed his people to place on these corners is important for the Jewish tradition. And rabbis at this time, who are the Jewish teachers of the law, would wear these prayer shawls. And so Jesus also wore these prayer shawls when he was walking around. And there would be these tassels on the corners with 613 of them to represent the 613 commandments that God had given the Torah. 
And before Jesus came, the last prophet to give the word of God was Malachi. And, the, he, and for 400 years, there was silence from God. But Malachi's important message was that he foretold that there would be one who would come, the Messiah, who would bring freedom for humanity, but he would also free the oppressed people. And so it says in Malachi 4.2, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And the Hebrew word for wings, which I've been learning in class, is kanaf, which is also the same word used in Numbers 15 for corner. And so what these people believed, and this was the prevalent idea, was that when the Messiah comes, he will be a rabbi, but if you touch the corners of his prayer shawl, then you will find healing. So for this woman to touch the prayer shawl on the corner of Christ, she's proclaiming with her action that this is the Messiah. And her faith is desperate. But I think we have to understand that faith in and of itself, even if it's desperate, is not what saves. It's the object in whom our faith lies. We have to realize, just like the woman did, that Jesus is the only solution of freedom to our condition. The woman, as virtuous as she was, independent on Christ, was not quite ready to be vulnerable. And so she goes on this little espionage mission where she kind of sneaks into the crowd, and she comes up behind Jesus to try to touch him, get healed, and then slip out. But what happens is Jesus, being fully divine and being God, he realizes, and so he asks, who touched me? And this is not for his understanding and knowledge. It's rather for when we see in Scripture that when God asks questions a lot, it's for the benefit of the, the person answering to acknowledge and confess where they are at or who God is. And so this woman, if you could just place yourself in her shoes, she falls at the feet of everyone. Everyone stopped around her. And she confesses for the upteenth time how she's unclean and why she came to Christ. We have to focus on Jesus. What does Jesus do? Jesus is on his way with the synagogue ruler Jairus to heal a 12-year-old daughter who is on the verge of death. There's urgency. It's imperative. But yet he's not interrupted by her. She's an appointment. And I think that's important and key for us because Jesus could have gone further. He, he knew that she was healed and he could have kept on his way. But the reason why he stops is because he wants to heal her of her shame. And for him, that's more important. And so he stops and he invites her in the same way that Jesus invites us to. J.I. Packer says that habit forming is the way that the Holy Spirit brings us to holiness. And so I think we have to practice the habit of vulnerability with each other. Vulnerability is courage. It's willing to go all in when you can't control the outcome of the other person and how they respond. And I think with our Asian American or even our American um, kind of society and our traditions, we have to realize that vulnerability is not a weakness. It's beautiful. And it takes an insane amount of courage. And for the one who is vulnerable and chooses to be vulnerable with us, we have to honor them. And so I think one of the worst things for us is to risk emotional exposure to pain and to be turned down or for someone to kind of um, deem our vulnerability as unimportant. As Christ brings healing to our shame, how can we tend to other people's shame? Um, Fred Rogers, or Mr. Rogers in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, is one of my childhood heroes. 
And he says this, that's really, really key. He says, um, the world needs a, be- a sense of worth and it will achieve it only by its people feeling that they are worthwhile. Likewise, Dr. Brene Brown says that if we can share our story with someone who responds with empathy and understanding, then shame can't survive. So this past month was pretty hard for me. I had a lot of conversations with people um, over conflict resolution, over addressing sin in their lives, of reconciliation, apologies, and conversations I didn't want to have, but I kind of, that God compelled me to, to seek after. And last weekend, I had to apologize to a friend for breaking their trust. And trust is big. And so I knew it would take a lot of vulnerability for me to come to that person, to acknowledge my shame. It would take courage to share my apology to them. And so as I sat across from my friend, I just, I didn't want to make an excuse. I didn't want to make myself seem better, but I just apologized. And they said, with a lot of grace, I forgive you. And I kind of started to protest because I didn't really expect that. And I was like, but I understand that there's trust that's broken. And they interrupted me and they said, I still trust you. That's the way that we honor each other with vulnerability. And we see God's heart in embracing vulnerability when we come exposed to him at his feet, like the story of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son returns to the father, the father's response is deafening and speaks volumes. And Henry Nouwen, in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, says this about the father. He says, the father's epic love for his lost son is shown in the way he runs toward the prodigal son, abandoning all propriety. The fathers of the age were not supposed to run. Jewish culture says that this behavior would not only be considered odd, but shameful. He would have needed to tie his tunic around his legs, exposing his legs, But the father thus demonstrated that his love is much more powerful than shame and contempt. The father's heart loves wildly because it embraces vulnerability. And so my question is like, what what would it be like here at Harvest if in our church community, if we no longer treated this place and we moved from this place of not, it's not a museum for saints. It's not a courtroom for convicts but rather we see church as a place where it's a hospital for the broken and to gain an understanding that we are all patients who are in need of God's healing mercy. How can you instill worth in and combat against the shame in others' lives that become vulnerable to you? In one of C.S. Lewis's series in his books of the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a book called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And there's this boy named Eustace, and he's a very spoiled and greedy, and you just don't like him at all in the beginning. He's on this ship, and they're, they're kind of docking at different islands, and he comes off, and he wanders on his own, and he comes to his cave, where he finds this huge cave with a dragon sleeping on top of a mountain of gold and wealth. And he watches as the dragon dies, and he starts to connive and scheme and think, okay, where are some ways how I can take this jewelry and this gold back onto the ship discreetly without my friends knowing. And so he starts putting jewelry on himself and he falls asleep. And when he wakes up to his dismay, he realizes that he's turned into the dragon. He's turned into a dragon. And he's hurting because now the bracelets he's put on are are too small for his dragon arms and legs. And right at that moment, Aslan enters the scene. Aslan is the lion 
who represents and is symbolic of Christ. And Aslan leads him into this deeper into the cave where there is this pool. And he tells Eustace, you have to undress, be undressed of the scales. And so what Eustace starts to do is he starts to claw at his scales and little by little the, the scales fall off and, and he's about to jump into the water but then he looks in the reflection and he sees that he's still a dragon. So three times he tries this but nothing works and then Aslan comes to him and gently says, you have to let me undress you. And what Aslan does and says in this book is he cuts, his first cut is so deep and painful. And Aslan's not peaceful at all in this way that he undresses Eustace, but it's very violent. And he pushes Eustace into the pool, and Eustace comes out as a boy again. Regarding this story, Tim Keller said that Eustace not only realized he couldn't get his own skin off, but that God can come and he has to take the scales off. And to do this, we have to pierce deep. What's kind of paradoxical about shame is the only way to fight it is to fight through it. And so for me, rivaling one of the best blessings in coming to Orlando has been counseling at my seminary, at Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, when I first came, Pastor DL suggested, hey, you know, you should check out counseling. And I almost like scoffed a little bit in my spirit. I was like, man, I don't, I don't need counseling. I'm okay. But um, I was curious, and it was incredibly cheap. So I was like, okay, let's check it out. Um, and so what happened was I came across my counselor, and Pastor Deal told me before my first session, he said, allow the scale, scalpel of counseling to go deep so that you may find true healing. And so my first of nine sessions with Brad Rahr, who is an awesome and phenomenal counselor, was amazing. And he, his first kind of impression for me, what he told me was, don't rush your story, but be curious about yourself. And that was a the theme of those nine months. And over those nine months, it was incredibly difficult. I've always been pretty vulnerable and honest, but this was the first time I invited someone I didn't really know to enter with me down into the staircase of my own perdition in hell. I had to engage shame head on, and there was no way out of those doors. I remember breaking down in front of Brad a lot. I remember one time when I broke down in front of Brad, and I just sobbed, and I just said, I've tried so hard all my life. I tried to be the best boyfriend I could. I tried to be the best son I could to my parents. I tried to be the best student so I could make it to med school to serve God in medical missions. And what all that has left me is nothing. And I just feel so exhausted. As I sat there and I shared that, I felt like shame was like laughing at me, calling me spineless and pathetic. But Brad was gentle. He said, you fought courageously and you fought beautifully. It's easy for us to acknowledge our depravity, but it's harder for us to embrace the dignity that God has given us. Through counseling, I found ways to silence shame in different ways through Christ's healing. My recent and newfound skirmishes about body image issues and self-care and rest, which I don't pursue well, and depraved desires in women and relational drama, and navigating feelings of inadequacy and rejection in youth ministry were all fought on this battlefield of the couch. And the inner monologues of shame that I had with myself started to transform into these inner dialogues of healing with Christ. 
And what we see is that Aslan, or Jesus, he doesn't just leave us stripped down as we are when he removes our scales. We see this in Luke 15, 22, when the prodigal son returns to the father. And what the father does, he doesn't leave the son who comes home as he is, but he instead he calls for his servants to bring the best robe to put it on him. He calls for a ring and sandals for his bare feet. Jesus doesn't just leave us devoid of shame, but he redignifies us with worth and honor. And so here in counseling, I've learned to find beauty in my life and what I've thought to be ashes. I've learned to love the parts of me that I have hated and to find beautiful in myself what I've thought to be ugly. That's the way that Christ has sought to undragon me in this season. Shame hates it when we are vulnerable. It thrives off of isolation and when we put things in the dark. And here in the body of Christ, we can become vulnerable and confess our sins to God and each other because we are all broken likewise. Vulnerability is a way of life. It's not just one event of sharing at a retreat. Tim Keller says that to be loved but not known is superficial and comforting. To be known but not loved is our deepest fear. To be fully known and fully loved is a lot like being loved by God, which is precisely what we need. Shame drives us to isolation, so we have to fight this propensity to be alone. In Scripture, God is the shepherd of the flock, not just a few million sheep individually. And so here, we have to do whatever it takes to pursue community. Even if our lives are transient in this season, or even if other people's lives are transient, we have to pursue community and embrace it and commit to it and be faithful to it, whether that's in house church or youth ministry or ministries here altogether at church. We can be open and transparent with people in church because we are all broken. And so the question is, who can you be more vulnerable with here at church? Who's someone that's trusted and safe that you can share your life with? If we haven't shared our whole story with someone yet, that's a reflection of how much shame has been in control of our lives. Jesus wants to redignify us and clothe us. And that brings us to our next point, that Jesus restores our family. He, re- he restores our dignity and redefines us from failure to family. Jesus restores our dignity and redefines us from failure to family. When Jesus first addresses the woman in um, Mark 5, verses 31 to 34, Jesus calls her daughter. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say stranger. He doesn't say woman. He doesn't even say friend. But he calls her by a term of endearment in the family of daughter. And this is the only place in all of the Gospels where Jesus has called someone a daughter. And what he does is he redefines her life. She has been isolated from her family for the past 12 years. She has not been able to see or come into contact with her family. And for the first time in 12 years, someone calls her daughter for the first time. That's Jesus' love for us. He redefines us. He brings us from failure into family. He calls her daughter out loud to restore her identity, but also in the face of community. So now everyone knows that she's back. To God, you and I, we're not just another face in the crowd. Throughout Romans 8, we see that we are called his sons and his daughters. 
your heirs to him and his inheritance. I think God is calling you out this morning. He wants to be known and to know you. And he asked the same question that he asked in Genesis 3 to Adam and Eve. Where are you? Who are you? God wants to restore what was lost. And so when Adam and Eve, when they create these fig leaves to cover themselves inadequately, what God does in a demonstration of mercy is he kills two animals and he provides these skin coverings to clothe them better. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, 20 to 21, God's remedy is an incredibly scandalous one, but it's one that involves a sacrifice. A couple years ago, I was in Virginia. Uh, I was going through a, a training program called, from YWAM called Discipleship Training School. And there was a speaker who came, uh, Joe Fronte, who gave a talk on, well, we can talk on the Father heart of God. And so if you can imagine my angst in just viewing God as someone who's disappointed in me, and I view my life as a, being one of, I was a failure. And so that engagement, it just collided head on. If I could place myself in the shoes of the prodigal son in his story, if I'm coming around the bend to the fathers, I don't see him running towards me, but instead I see him still far off, extremely disappointed with where I've come from. And so we had this one night after he shared called Plumline. And Plumline was where, in a group of men, and we would sit in a circle, and each one of us would share everything. And I mean everything. And so when it came to my turn, I started to share about my sins, my addictions, the abuse done to me growing up overseas. And I shared about my misperceptions of who God was, about how I thought he was disappointed in me. And afterwards I shared, I was kind of ashamed because I've been a Christian for so long. I grew up as a pastor's kid, a missionary kid. I still had this belief that God was disappointed in me. But an older man spoke up in the circle. He said to me, this is what God is saying to you. And he says this to you. He says, oh, my son, Josiah, I am so proud of you. And I just lost it. Because for the first time, I realized in my life that God didn't just tolerate me, but he liked me. And he liked being with me. And more than that, he cherished me and he delighted in me. And then the man stood up and he said, this is a hug from the father. And he came over and gave me this embrace, which seemed like it lasted for eternity. But for the first time, I felt like I was truly known and fully loved. To conclude, we see a beautiful picture of how Christ deals and has dealt with our shame. What's beautiful in Scripture is that Christ fulfilled all three biblical motifs. He lived them out in his living and his dying. To restore us, God had to exchange his glory and his honor for our shame. God came into the lowly world in the form of man, mortal, prone to weakness, prone to suffering and ridicule and scorn and shame for our sake. In the kingdom of God, the untouchables are touched, the unclean are made clean, and those who have been separated from society now can come into the presence of God to worship him. 
The good news of the gospel is that God covers our shame and he makes us worthy once again. The way Jesus did this was by bearing himself on himself all the sins and shame of the world from all that's been passed before him, all of them at that point, and all of the future ones that are to come. Through Adam and Eve, we saw that Adam went to the wrong tree. And as a result, sin came into the world and shame gained its control over us. But in Christ, we see that Jesus went to the right tree, to the cross, and he embraced it. And for our sake, he exchanged his honor and he took on our, our shame. Before Jesus went to the cross, he went to the garden, not to hide like Adam and Eve did, but to confront shame and put an end to it. And so when we cry out now in our times of, we ask God, how could a good and loving God allow such horrible or unspeakable things happen to me? Or how could a loving God neglect me in the battle, in my battle with shame? God answers in, in silence in the way that he died. When Christ was crucified, his clothes were divided as lots, just like the goats were divided in Leviticus 16, and he hung naked upon the cross. He chose to endure our shame and ridicule because of his immense love for us, and so he, in a way of substitution and propitiation, he exchanged our shame for his glory. And so we became from unclean, unworthy, and outcasts into the status of pure, worthy, and honorable children. Jesus was naked when he was crucifying the cross. And because of so, he's able to empathize with us in our nakedness and in our exposure. In Jesus' living, he lived and he hung out with the prostitutes and the tax collectors, the unclean and the lepers. That's the kind of people that Jesus wanted to be with, those who are marginalized by society, who were filled with an incredible amount of shame. And finally, Jesus, in his death, he wasn't crucified in Jerusalem, in the city of God. He was taken outside the city of gates to Golgotha, outside the camp of God. By dying in shame and exposure, Jesus disarmed the evil powers of shame that seeks to condemn us. It's in Jesus alone that we can find hope and freedom from our shame in God. What God thinks about you is the most important thing about you. Not what other people say. Not even what you think. And there's a song from Delirious that says, when God made you, God didn't screw up when he made you. He's a father who loves to parade you. And so as a result, we are not damaged. We're not second rate. We're not unworthy or unclean. In Christ, we are his sons and daughters, redeemed and created specifically for his purposes. And in your life, yes, you have made mistakes, and yes, you have sinned, but you are not a mistake. You were fashioned with purpose and with beauty and with dignity. And God is so proud of all the steps you've taken to get to this point. We hear God loves us, but sometimes in that reiteration, the magic is a little bit lost, and we have to realize that God doesn't just tolerate us, but he, he likes us. He loves spending time with us. He cherishes us, and he delights in us. And so now, as we enter into relationship with Christ, it says in Romans 8, 1, that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
when we fail, Christ triumphs. When we're told to be ashamed, Jesus tells us over and over again that he's proud of us. When we're unfaithful and selfish and quick to leave Christ, Christ never leaves. When we're sick and broken, God heals. When we are loved imperfectly by others and even ourselves, Christ loves us perfectly. Let's spend some time um, just in closing to reflect um, on this, about how Christ has brought us freedom from our shame, our sin, and our death on the cross. And I think what's amazing is that Jesus didn't have to, he could have moved on from the woman, but he chose to linger and he chose to invite her into a place where she could find freedom. His concern wasn't her physical ailments, but his concern was about what's going on inside. And that's the same place that Jesus wants to meet us today. He's inviting us to take a time to reflect and introspect of our lives and to see how shame has dominated our life stories and our narratives, but how Jesus' message of hope is so much stronger and there's so much more life in there. So let's spend some time praying and just ask God, God, how do you view me? Am I your son and daughter that you forsook all to come for my sake?